This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 49. The Ancient Baths. Ye Apparition. A Distinguished Panorama. The Last Battle of the Crusades. The Story of the Lord of Kerak. Mount Tabor. What One Sees from Its Top. Memory of a Wonderful Garden. The House of Deborah the Prophetess. We took another swim in the Sea of Galilee at twilight yesterday, and another at sunrise this morning. We have not sailed, but three swims are equal to a sail, are they not? They were plenty of fish visible in the water, but we have no outside aids in this pilgrimage, but tent life in the Holy Land, the land and the book, and other literature of like description. No fishing tackle. There were no fish to be had in the village of Tiberias. True, we saw two or three vagabonds mending their nets, but never trying to catch anything with them. We did not go to the ancient warm baths two miles below Tiberias. I had no desire in the world to go there. This seemed a little strange, and prompted me to try to discover what the cause of this unreasonable indifference was. It turned out to be simply because Pliny mentions them. I have conceived a sort of unwarrantable unfriendliness towards Pliny and St. Paul, because it seems as if I can never ferret out a place that I can have to myself. It always and eternally transpires that St. Paul has been to that place, and Pliny has mentioned it. In the early morning we mounted and started, and then a weird apparition marched forth at the head of the procession, a pirate, I thought, if ever a pirate dwelt upon land. It was a tall Arab, as swarthy as an Indian young, say thirty years of age. On his head he had closely bound a gorgeous yellow and red-striped silk scarf, whose ends, lavishly fringed with tassels, hung down between his shoulders and dallied with the wind. From his neck to his knees, in ample folds, a robe swept down that was a very star-spangled banner of curved and sinuous bars of black and white. Out of his back, somewhere, apparently, the long stem of a chibouk projected, and reached far above his right shoulder. Athwart his back, diagonally, and extending high above his left shoulder, was an Arab gun of Saladin's time, that was splendid with silver plating from stock clear up to the end of its measureless stretch of barrel. About his waist was bound many and many a yard of elaborately figured but sadly tarnished stuff that came from sumptuous Persia and among the baggy folds in front the sunbeams glinted from a formidable battery of old brass-mounted horse-pistols and the gilded hilts of bloodthirsty knives. There were holsters for more pistols appended to the wonderful stack of long-haired goatskins and Persian carpets, which the man had been taught to regard in the light of a saddle, and down among the pendulous rank of vast tassels that swung from that saddle, and clanging against the iron shovel of a stirrup that propped the warrior's knees up toward his chin, was a crooked, silver-clad scimitar, 
of such awful dimensions and such implacable expression that no man might hope to look upon it and not shudder. The fringed and bedizened prince, whose privilege it is to ride the pony and lead the elephant into a country village, is poor and naked compared to this chaos of paraphernalia, and the happy vanity of the one is the very poverty of satisfaction compared to the majestic serenity, the overwhelming complacency of the other. Who is this? What is this? That was the trembling inquiry all down the line. Our guard! From Galilee to the birthplace of the Saviour the country is infested with fierce Bedouins, whose sole happiness it is in this life to cut and stab and mangle and murder unoffending Christians. Allah be with us! Then hire a regiment. Would you send us out among these desperate hordes with no salvation in our utmost need but this old turret? The dragoman laughed, not at the facetiousness of the simile, for verily that guide or that courier or that dragoman never yet lived upon earth who had in him the faintest appreciation of a joke, even though that joke were so broad and so ponderous that if it fell on him it would flatten him out like a postage stamp. The dragoman laughed, and then, emboldened by some thought that was in his brain, no doubt, proceeded to extremities, and winked. In straits like these, when a man laughs, it is encouraging when he winks, it is positively reassuring. He finally intimated that one guard would be sufficient to protect us, but that that one was an absolute necessity. It was because of the moral weight his awful panoply would have with the Bedouins. Then I said we didn't want any guard at all. If one fantastic vagabond could protect eight armed Christians and a pack of Arab servants from all harm, surely that detachment could protect themselves. He shook his head doubtfully. Then I said, Just think of how it looks. Think of how it would read, to self-reliant Americans, that we went sneaking through this deserted wilderness under the protection of this masquerading Arab, who would break his neck getting out of the country if a man that was a man ever started after him. It was a mean, low, degrading position. Why were we ever told to bring navy revolvers with us, if we had to be protected at last by this infamous star-spangled scum of the desert? These appeals were vain. The dragoman only smiled and shook his head. I rode to the front and struck up an acquaintance with King Solomon in all his glory, and got him to show me his lingering eternity of a gun. It had a rusty flintlock. It was ringed and barred and plated with silver from end to end, but it was as desperately out of the perpendicular as are the billiard cues of forty-nine that one finds yet in service in the ancient mining camps of California. The muzzle was eaten by the rust of centuries into a ragged filigree work, like the end of a burnt-out stove-pipe. I shut one eye and peered within. It was flaked with iron rust, like an old steamboat boiler. I borrowed the ponderous pistols and snapped them. They were rusty inside, too, had not been loaded for a generation. I went back, full of encouragement, and reported to the guide, and asked him to discharge this dismantled fortress. It came out, then. This fellow was a retainer of the Sheik of Tiberias. He was a source of government revenue. He was to the Empire of Tiberias what the customs are to America. The Sheik imposed guards upon travellers, and charged them for it. It is a lucrative source of emolument, and sometimes brings into the national treasury as much as thirty-five or forty dollars a year. I knew the warrior's secret now. I knew the hollow vanity of his rusty trumpery, and despised his asinine complacency. 
I told on him, and with reckless daring the cavalcade straight ahead into the perilous solitudes of the desert, and scorned his frantic warnings of the mutilation and death that hovered about them on every side. Arrived at an elevation of twelve hundred feet above the lake, I ought to mention that the lake lies six hundred feet below the level of the Mediterranean. No traveller ever neglects to flourish that fragment of news in his letters. As bald and unthrilling a panorama as any land can afford, perhaps, was spread out before us. Yet it was so crowded with historical interest, that if all the pages that have been written about it were spread upon its surface, they would flag it from horizon to horizon like a pavement. Among the localities comprised in this view were Mount Hermon, the hills that border Caesarea Philippi, Dan, the sources of the Jordan, and the waters of Merom, Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, Joseph's Pit, Capernaum, Bethsaida, the supposed scenes of the Sermon on the Mount, the feeding of the multitudes and the miraculous draft of fishes, the declivity down which the swine ran to the sea, the entrance and the exit of the Jordan, Saft, the city set upon a hill, one of the four holy cities of the Jews, and the place where they believe the real Messiah will appear when he comes to redeem the world part of the battlefield of Hatton, where the knightly crusaders fought their last fight, and in a blaze of glory passed from the stage and ended their splendid career forever, Mount Tabor, the traditional scene of the Lord's Transfiguration, and down toward the southeast lay a landscape that suggested to my mind a quotation, imperfectly remembered, no doubt. The Ephraimites not being called upon to share in the rich spoils of the Ammonitish war, assembled a mighty host to fight against Jephthah, judge of Israel, who, being apprised of their approach, gathered together the men of Israel, and gave them battle, and put them to flight. To make his victory the more secure, he stationed guards at the different fords and passages of the Jordan, with instructions to let none pass who could not say Shibboleth. The Ephraimites, being of a different tribe, could not frame to pronounce the word right, but called it Sibboleth, which proved them enemies and cost them their lives. Wherefore forty and two thousand fell at the different fords and passages of the Jordan that day. We jogged along peacefully over the great caravan route from Damascus to Jerusalem and Egypt past Lubia and other Syrian hamlets, perched in the unvarying style upon the summit of steep mounds and hills, and fenced round about with giant cactuses, the sign of worthless land, with prickly pears upon them like hams, and came at last to the battlefield of Hatton. It is a grand, irregular plateau, and looks as if it might have been created for a battlefield. Here the peerless Saladin met the Christian host some seven hundred years ago, and broke their power in Palestine for all time to come. There had long been a truce between the opposing forces, but according to the guide-book, Reynaud of Châtillon, lord of Kerak, broke it by plundering a Damascus caravan, and refusing to give up either the merchants or their goods when Saladin demanded them. This conduct of an insolent petty chieftain stung the Sultan to the quick and he swore that he would slaughter Reynaud with his own hand, no matter how, or when, or where he found him. Both armies prepared for war. Under the weak king of Jerusalem was the very flower of the Christian chivalry. 
he foolishly compelled them to undergo a long exhausting march in the scorching sun, and then, without water or refreshment, ordered them to encamp in this open plain. The splendidly mounted masses of Moslem soldiers swept round the north end of Gennesaret, burning and destroying as they came, and pitched their camp in front of the opposing lines. At dawn the terrific fight began. Surrounded on all sides by the Sultan's swarming battalions, the Christian knights fought on without a hope for their lives. They fought with desperate valor, but to no purpose. The odds of heat and numbers and consuming thirst were too great against them. Towards the middle of the day the bravest of their band cut their way through the Moslem ranks and gained the summit of a little hill, and there, hour after hour, they closed around the banner of the cross and beat back the charging squadrons of the enemy. But the doom of the Christian power was sealed. Sunset found Saladin lord of Palestine, the Christian chivalry strewn in heaps upon the field, and the king of Jerusalem, the grand master of the Templars, and Renaud of Châtillon, captives in the Sultan's tent. Saladin treated two of the prisoners with princely courtesy, and ordered refreshments to be set before them. When the king handed an iced sherbet to Châtillon, the Sultan said, It is thou that givest it to him, not I. He remembered his oath, and slaughtered the hapless knight of Châtillon with his own hand. It was hard to realize that this silent plain had once resounded with martial music and trembled to the tramp of armed men. It was hard to people this solitude with rushing columns of cavalry, and stir its torpid pulses with the shouts of victors, the shrieks of the wounded, and the flash of banner and steel above the surging billows of war. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We reached Tabor safely, and considerably in advance of that old iron-clad swindle of a guard. We never saw a human being on the whole route, much less lawless hordes of Bedouins. Tabor stands solitary and alone, a giant sentinel above the plain of Esdra-Elan. It rises some fourteen hundred feet above the surrounding level, a green wooden cone, symmetrical and full of grace, a prominent landmark and one that is exceedingly pleasant to eyes surfeited with the repulsive monotony of desert Syria. We climbed the steep path to its summit, through breezy glades of thorn and oak. The view presented from its highest peak was almost beautiful. Below was the broad, level plain of Esdra-Elan, checkered with fields like a chessboard, and full as smooth and level, seemingly, dotted about its borders with white compact villages, and faintly penciled far and near with the curving lines of roads and trails. When it is robed in the fresh verdure of spring, it must form a charming picture even by itself. Skirting its southern border rises Little Hermon, over whose summit a glimpse of Gilboa is caught. Nain, famous for the raising of the widow's son, and Endor, as famous for the performances of her witch, are in view. To the eastward lies the valley of the Jordan, and beyond it the mountains of Gilead. Westward is Mount Carmel, Hermon in the north, the tablelands of Bashan, Safed, the holy city, gleaming white upon a tall spur of the mountains of Lebanon, a steel-blue corner of the Sea of Galilee, saddle-peaked Hatton, traditional mount of Beatitudes, and mute witness brave fights of the crusading host for Holy Cross, these fill up the picture. To glance at the salient features of this landscape through the picturesque framework of a ragged and ruined stone window, 
arch of the time of Christ, thus hiding from sight all that is unattractive, is to secure to yourself a pleasure worth climbing the mountain to enjoy. One must stand on his head to get the best effect in a fine sunset, and set a landscape in a bold, strong framework that is very close at hand to bring out all its beauty. One learns this latter truth, never more to forget it, in that mimic land of enchantment, the wonderful garden of my lord the Count Pallavicini near Genoa. You go wandering for hours among hills and wooded glens, artfully contrived to leave the impression that nature shaped them and not man, following winding paths and coming suddenly upon leaping cascades and rustic bridges, finding sylvan lakes where you expected them not, loitering through battered medieval castles in miniature that seem hoary with age, and yet were built a dozen years ago meditating over ancient crumbling tombs, whose marble columns were marred and broken purposely by the modern artist that made them, stumbling unawares upon toy castles, wrought of rare and costly materials, and again upon a peasant's hut, whose dilapidated furniture would never suggest that it was made so to order, sweeping round and round in the midst of a forest on an enchanted wooden horse that is moved by some invisible agency traversing Roman roads, and passing under majestic triumphal arches, resting in quaint bowers, where unseen spirits discharge jets of water on you from every possible direction, and where even the flowers you touch assail you with a shower, boating on a subterranean lake among caverns and arches royally draped with clustering stalactites, and passing out into open day upon another lake, which is bordered with sloping banks of grass, and gay with patrician barges, that swim at anchor in the shadow of a miniature marble temple that rises out of the clear water and glasses its white statues, its rich capitals, and fluted columns in the tranquil depths. So, from marvel to marvel, you have drifted on, thinking all the time that the one last scene must be the chiefest, and verily the chiefest wonder is reserved until the last, but you do not see it until you step ashore and passing through a wilderness of rare flowers collected from every corner of the earth, you stand at the door of one more mimic temple. Right in this place the artist taxed his genius to the utmost, and fairly opened the gates of fairyland. You look through an unpretending pane of glass, stained yellow. The first thing you see is a mass of quivering foliage. Then short steps before you, in the midst of which is a ragged opening like a gateway, a thing that is common enough in nature, and not apt to excite suspicions of a deep human design, and above the bottom of the gateway project, in the most careless way, a few broad tropic leaves and brilliant flowers. All of a sudden, through this bright, bold gateway, you catch a glimpse of the faintest, softest, richest picture that ever graced the dream of a dying saint, since John saw the new Jerusalem glimmering above the clouds of heaven a broad sweep of sea, flecked with careening sails, a sharp jutting cape, and a lofty lighthouse on it, a sloping lawn behind it, beyond a portion of the old city of palaces, with its parks and hills and stately mansions, beyond these a prodigious mountain, with its strong outline sharply cut against ocean and sky, and over all vagrant shreds and flakes of cloud floating in a sea of gold. The ocean is gold, the city is gold, the meadow, the mountain, the sky, everything is golden rich and mellow and dreamy as a vision of paradise. 
no artist could put upon canvas its entrancing beauty. And yet without the yellow glass, and the carefully contrived accident of a framework that cast it into enchanted distance and shut out from it all unattractive features, it was not a picture to fall into ecstasies over. Such is life, and the trail of the serpent is over us all. There is nothing for it now but to come back to old Tabor, though the subject is tiresome enough, and I cannot stick to it for wandering off to scenes that are pleasanter to remember. I think I will skip, anyhow. There is nothing about Tabor, except we concede that it was the scene of the transfiguration, but some gray old ruins, stacked up there in all ages of the world from the days of stout Gideon and parties that flourished thirty centuries ago, to the fresh yesterday of crusading times. It has its Greek convent, and the coffee there is good, but never a splinter of the true cross or bone of a hallowed saint to attest the idle thoughts of worldlings, and turn them into graver channels. A Catholic church is nothing to me that has no relics. The plain of Esdra-Elan, the battlefield of the nations, only sets one to dreaming of Joshua, and Ben-Hadad, and Saul, and Gideon, Tamerlane, Tancred, Coeur de Lyon, and Saladin, the warrior-kings of Persia, Egypt's heroes, and Napoleon, for they all fought here. If the magic of the moonlight could summon from the graves of forgotten centuries and many lands the countless myriads that have battled on this wide, far-reaching floor, and array them in the thousand strange costumes of their hundred nationalities, and send the vast host sweeping down the plain, splendid with plumes and banners and glittering lances, I could stay here an age to see the phantom pageant. But the magic of the moonlight is a vanity and a fraud, and whoso putteth his trust in it shall suffer sorrow and disappointment. Down at the foot of Tabor, and just at the edge of the storied plain of Esdra-Elan, is the insignificant village of Deburia, where Deborah, prophetess of Israel, lived. It is just like Magdala. End of chapter 49 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 50 Toward Nazareth Bitten by a Camel Grotto of the Annunciation, Nazareth, Noted Grottos in General, Joseph's Workshop, A Sacred Boulder, The Fountain of the Virgin, Questionable Female Beauty, Literary Curiosities. We descended from Mount Tabor, crossed a deep ravine, followed a hilly, rocky road to Nazareth, distant two hours. All distances in the east are measured by hours, not miles. A good horse will walk three miles an hour over nearly any kind of a road, therefore an hour here always stands for three miles. This method of computation is bothersome and annoying, and until one gets thoroughly accustomed to it, it carries no intelligence to his mind until he has stopped and translated the pagan hours into Christian miles, just as people do with the spoken words of a foreign language they are acquainted with, but not familiarly enough to catch the meaning in a moment. Distances travelled by human feet are also estimated by hours and minutes, though I do not know what the base of the calculation is. In Constantinople you ask, How far is it to the consulate? And they answer, About ten minutes. How far is it to the Lloyd's Agency? 
quarter of an hour. How far is it to the lower bridge? Four minutes. I cannot be positive about it, but I think that there, when a man orders a pair of pantaloons, he says he wants them a quarter of a minute in the legs and nine seconds around the waist. Two hours from Tabor to Nazareth, and, as it was an uncommonly narrow, crooked trail, we necessarily met all the camel trains and jackass caravans between Jericho and Jacksonville in that particular place, and nowhere else. The donkeys do not matter so much, because they are so small that you can jump your horse over them if he is an animal of spirit, but a camel is not jumpable. A camel is as tall as an ordinary dwelling-house in Syria, which is to say a camel is from one to two and sometimes nearly three feet taller than a good-sized man. In this part of the country his load is oftenest in the shape of colossal sacks, one on each side. He and his cargo take up as much room as a carriage. Think of meeting this style of obstruction in a narrow trail. The camel would not turn out for a king. He stalks serenely along, bringing his cushioned stilts forward with the long, regular swing of a pendulum, and whatever is in the way must get out of the way, peaceably, or be wiped out forcibly by the bulky sacks. It was a tiresome ride to us, and perfectly exhausting to the horses. We were compelled to jump over upwards of eighteen hundred donkeys, and only one person in the party was unseated less than sixty times by the camels. This seems like a powerful statement, but the poet has said, "'Things are not what they seem.' I cannot think of anything, now, more certain to make one shudder than to have a soft-footed camel sneak up behind him and touch him on the ear with its cold, flabby underlip. A camel did this for one of the boys, who was drooping over his saddle in a brown study. He glanced up and saw the majestic apparition hovering above him, and made frantic efforts to get out of the way, but the camel reached out and bit him on the shoulder before he accomplished it. This was the only pleasant incident of the journey. At Nazareth we camped in an olive-grove near the Virgin Mary's fountain, and that wonderful Arab guard came to collect some bakshish for his services in following us from Tiberias and warding off invisible dangers with the terrors of his armament. The dragoman had paid his master, but that counted as nothing. If you hire a man to sneeze for you here, and another man chooses to help him, you have got to pay both. They do nothing whatever without pay. How it must have surprised these people to hear the way of salvation offered to them, without money and without price! If the manners, the people, or the customs of this country have changed since the Saviour's time, the figures and metaphors of the Bible are not the evidence to prove it by. We entered the great Latin convent which is built over the traditional dwelling-place of the Holy Family. We went down a flight of fifteen steps below the ground level, and stood in a small chapel, tricked out with tapestry hangings, silver lamps, and oil paintings. A spot marked by a cross, in the marble floor, under the altar, was exhibited as the place made for ever holy by the feet of the Virgin, when she stood up to receive the message of the angel. So simple, so unpretending a locality, to be the scene of so mighty an event! The very scene of the Annunciation! an event which has been commemorated by splendid shrines and august temples all over the civilized world, and one which the princes of art have made it their loftiest ambition to picture worthily on their canvas, a spot whose history is familiar to the very children of every house and city and obscure hamlet of the furthest lands of Christendom. 
a spot which myriads of men would toil across the breadth of a world to see, would consider it a priceless privilege to look upon. It was easy to think these thoughts, but it was not easy to bring myself up to the magnitude of the situation. I could sit off several thousand miles and imagine the angel appearing, with shadowy wings and lustrous countenance, and note the glory that streamed downward upon the Virgin's head, while the message from the throne of God fell upon her ears. Any one can do that, beyond the ocean, but few can do it here. I saw the little recess from which the angel stepped, but could not fill its void. The angels that I know are creatures of unstable fancy. They will not fit in niches of substantial stone. Imagination labors best in distant fields. I doubt if any man can stand in the grotto of the Annunciation and people with the phantom images of his mind its two tangible walls of stone. They showed us a broken granite pillar, depending from the roof, which they said was hacked in two by the Muslim conquerors of Nazareth, in the vain hope of pulling down the sanctuary. But the pillar remained miraculously suspended in the air, and, unsupported itself, supported then, and still supports the roof. By dividing this statement up among eight, it was found not difficult to believe it. These gifted Latin monks never do anything by halves. If they were to show you the brazen serpent that was elevated in the wilderness, you could depend upon it that they had on hand the pole it was elevated on also, and even the hole it stood in. They have got the grotto of the Annunciation here, and just as convenient to it as one's throat is to his mouth, they have also the Virgin's kitchen, and even her sitting-room, where she and Joseph watched the infant Saviour play with Hebrew toys eighteen hundred years ago all under one roof, and all clean, spacious, comfortable grottoes. It seems curious that personage intimately connected with the Holy Family always lived in grottoes, in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, in imperial Ephesus, and yet nobody else in their day and generation thought of doing anything of the kind. If they ever did, their grottoes are all gone, and I suppose we ought to wonder at the peculiar marvel of the preservation of these I speak of. When the Virgin fled from Herod's wrath, she hid in a grotto in Bethlehem, and the same is there to this day. The slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem was done in a grotto. The Saviour was born in a grotto. Both are shown to pilgrims yet. It is exceedingly strange that these tremendous events all happened in grottoes, and exceedingly fortunate, likewise, because the strongest houses must crumble to ruin in time, but a grotto, in the living rock, will last for ever. It is an imposture, this grotto stuff, but it is one that all men ought to thank the Catholics for. Wherever they ferret out a lost locality made holy by some scriptural event, they straightway build a massive, almost imperishable church there, and preserve the memory of that locality for the gratification of future generations. If it had been left to the Protestants to do this most worthy work, we would not even know where Jerusalem is today and the man who could go and put his finger on Nazareth would be too wise for this world. The world owes the Catholics its good will even for the happy rascality of hewing out these bogus grottoes in the rock, for it is infinitely more satisfactory to look at a grotto where people have faithfully believed for centuries that the Virgin once lived, than to have to imagine a dwelling-place for her somewhere, anywhere, nowhere, loose and at large all over this town of Nazareth. There is too large a scope of country. The imagination cannot work. 
there is no one particular spot to chain your eye, rivet your interest, and make you think. The memory of the pilgrims cannot perish while Plymouth Rock remains to us. The old monks are wise. They know how to drive a stake through a pleasant tradition that will hold it to its place forever. We visited the place where Jesus worked for fifteen years as a carpenter, and where he attempted to teach in the synagogue and was driven out by a mob. Catholic chapels stand upon these sites, and protect the little fragments of the ancient walls which remain. Our pilgrims broke off specimens. We visited also a new chapel, in the midst of the town, which is built around a boulder some twelve feet long by four feet thick. The priests discovered, a few years ago, that the disciples had sat upon this rock to rest, once, when they had walked up from Capernaum. They hastened to preserve the relic. The relics are very good property. Travellers are expected to pay for seeing them, and they do it cheerfully. We like the idea. One's conscience can never be the worse for the knowledge that he has paid his way like a man. Our pilgrims would have liked very well to get out their lamp-black and stencil-plates, and paint their names on that rock, together with the names of the villages they hail from in America, but the priests permit nothing of that kind. To speak the strict truth, however, our party seldom offend in that way though we have men in the ship who never lose an opportunity to do it. Our pilgrims' chief sin is their lust for specimens. I suppose that by this time they know the dimensions of that rock to an inch, and its weight to a ton, and I do not hesitate to charge that they will go back there to-night and try to carry it off. This fountain of the Virgin is the one which tradition says Mary used to get water from twenty times a day when she was a girl and bear it away in a jar upon her head. The water streams through faucets in the face of a wall of ancient masonry which stands removed from the houses of the village. The young girls of Nazareth still collect about it by the dozen and keep up a riotous laughter and skylarking. The Nazarene girls are homely. Some of them have large, lustrous eyes, but none of them have pretty faces. These girls wear a single garment, usually, and it is loose, shapeless, of undecided color. It is generally out of repair, too. They wear, from crown to jaw, curious strings of old coins, after the manner of the bells of Tiberius, and brass jewelry upon their wrists and their ears. They wear no shoes and stockings. They are the most human girls we have found in the country yet, and the best-natured. But there is no question that these picturesque maidens sadly lack comeliness. A pilgrim, the enthusiast, said, See that tall, graceful girl? Look at the Madonna-like beauty of her countenance. Another pilgrim came along presently and said, Observe that tall, graceful girl. What queenly Madonna-like gracefulness of beauty is in her countenance? I said, She is not tall. She is short. She is not beautiful. She is homely. She is graceful enough, I grant, but she is rather boisterous. The third and last pilgrim moved by before long, and he said, Ah, what a tall, graceful girl! What Madonna-like gracefulness of queenly beauty! The verdicts were all in. It was time now to look up the authorities for all these opinions. I found this paragraph which follows. Written by whom? William C. Grimes. After we were in the saddle, we rode down to the spring to have a last look at the women of Nazareth, who were, as a class, much the prettiest that we had seen in the East. As we approached the crowd, a tall girl of nineteen advanced towards Miriam, and offered her a cup of water. 
her movement was graceful and queenly. We exclaimed on the spot at the Madonna-like beauty of her countenance. Whiteley was suddenly thirsty, and begged for water, and drank it slowly with his eyes over the top of the cup, fixed on her large black eyes, which gazed on him quite as curiously as he on her. Then more Wright wanted water. She gave it to him, and he managed to spill it so as to ask for another cup, and by the time she came to me she saw through the operation. Her eyes were full of fun as she looked at me. I laughed outright, and she joined me in as gay a shout as ever country maiden in old Orange County. I wished for a picture of her. A Madonna whose face was a portrait of that beautiful Nazareth girl would be a thing of beauty, and a joy for ever. That is the kind of gruel which has been served out from Palestine for ages. Commend me to Fenimore Cooper to find beauty in the Indians, and to Grimes to find it in the Arabs. Arab men are often fine-looking, but Arab women are not. We can all believe that the Virgin Mary was beautiful. It is not natural to think otherwise. But does it follow that it is our duty to find beauty in these present women of Nazareth? I love to quote from Grimes, because he is so dramatic, and because he is so romantic, and because he seems to care but little whether he tells the truth or not, so he scares the reader, or excites his envy or his admiration. He went through this peaceful land with one hand forever on his revolver, and the other on his pocket-handkerchief. Always, when he was not on the point of crying over a holy place, he was on the point of killing an Arab. More surprising things happened to him in Palestine than ever happened to any traveller here or elsewhere since Munchausen died. At Bayat Jin, where nobody had interfered with him, he crept out of his tent at dead of night and shot at what he took to be an Arab lying on a rock, some distance away, planning evil. The ball killed a wolf. Just before he fired, he makes a dramatic picture of himself, as usual, to scare the reader. Was it imagination, or did I see a moving object on the surface of the rock? If it were a man, why did he not now drop me? He had a beautiful shot as I stood out in my black bournous against the white tent. I had the sensation of an entering bullet in my throat, breast, brain. Reckless creature! Riding toward Genesaret, they saw two Bedouins, and we looked to our pistols and loosed them quietly in our shawls, etc. All was cool. In Samari he charged up a hill, in the face of a volley of stones, he fired into the crowd of men who threw them. He says, I never lost an opportunity of impressing the Arabs with the perfection of American and English weapons, and the danger of attacking any one of the armed Franks. I think the lesson of that ball not lost. At Beijing he gave his whole band of Arab muleteers a piece of his mind, and then, I contented myself with a solemn assurance that if there occurred another instance of disobedience to orders, I would thrash the responsible party, as he never dreamed of being thrashed, and if I could not find who was responsible, I would whip them all, from first to last, whether there was a governor at hand to do it, or I had to do it myself. Perfectly fearless, this man. He rode down the perpendicular path in the rocks, from the castle of Benias to the oak-grove, at a flying gallop his horse striding thirty feet at every bound. I stand prepared to bring thirty reliable witnesses to prove that Putnam's famous feat at horse-neck was insignificant compared to this. Behold him, always theatrical, looking at Jerusalem this time, by an oversight, with his hand off his pistol for once. 
I stood in the road, my hand on my horse's neck, and with my dim eyes sought to trace the outlines of the holy places which I had long before fixed in my mind, but the fast-flowing tears forbade my succeeding. There were our Mohammedan servants, a Latin monk, two Armenians, and a Jew in our cortege, and all alike gazed with overflowing eyes. If Latin monks and Arabs cried, I know to a moral certainty that the horses cried also, and so the picture is complete. But when necessity demanded, he could be firm as adamant. In the Lebanon valley, an Arab youth, a Christian, he is particular to explain that Mohammedans do not steal, robbed him of a paltry ten dollars' worth of powder and shot. He convicted him before a sheik, and looked on while he was punished by the terrible bastinado. Hear him. He, Musa, was on his back in a twinkling, howling, shouting, screaming, but he was carried out to the piazza before the door, where we could see the operation, and laid face down. One man sat on his back, and one on his legs the latter holding up his feet, while a third laid on the bare soles a rhinoceros-hide kurbash. A kurbash is Arabic for cowhide, the cow being a rhinoceros. It is the most cruel whip known to fame. Heavy as lead, and flexible as india-rubber, usually about forty inches long, and tapering gradually from an inch in diameter to a point, it administers a blow which leaves its mark for time scow life in egypt by the same author that whizzed through the air at every stroke poor moorite was in agony and nama and nama the second mother and sister of musa were on their faces begging and wailing now embracing my knees and now whiteley's while the brother outside made the air ring with cries louder than musa's even Yusef came and asked me on his knees to relent, and last of all Betuni, the rascal, had lost a feed-bag in their house, and had been loudest in his denunciations that morning, besought the Hawaji to have mercy on the fellow. But not he. The punishment was suspended at the fifteenth blow to hear the confession. Then Grimes and his party rode away, and left the entire Christian family to be fined, and as severely punished as the Mohammedan sheik should deem proper. As I mounted, Yusef once more begged me to interfere and have mercy on them, but I looked around at the dark faces of the crowd, and I couldn't find one drop of pity in my heart for them. He closes his picture with a rollicking burst of humor which contrasts finely with the grief of the mother and her children. One more paragraph. Then once more I bowed my head. It is no shame to have wept in Palestine. I wept when I saw Jerusalem. I wept when I lay in the starlight at Bethlehem. I wept on the blessed shores of Galilee. My hand was no less firm on the rein. My anger did not tremble on the trigger of my pistol when I rode with it in my right hand along the shore of the blue sea, weeping. My eye was not dimmed by those tears, nor my heart in aught weakened. Let him who would sneer at my emotion close this volume here, for he will find little to his taste in my journeyings through Holy Land. He never bored, but he struck water. I am aware that this is a pretty voluminous notice of Mr. Grimes' book. However, it is proper and legitimate to speak of it, for Nomadic Life in Palestine is a representative book, 
the representative of a class of Palestine books, and a criticism upon it will serve for a criticism upon them all. And since I am treating it in the comprehensive capacity of a representative book, I have taken the liberty of giving to both book and author fictitious names. Perhaps it is in better taste, anyhow, to do this. End of chapter 50 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 51 Boyhood of the Saviour. Unseemly Antics of Sober Pilgrims. Home of the Witch of Endor. Nain. Profanation. A Popular Oriental Picture. Biblical Metaphors Becoming Steadily More Intelligible. The Shuam Miracle, The Free Son of the Desert, Ancient Jezreel, Jehu's Achievements, Samaria and Its Famous Siege. Nazareth is wonderfully interesting, because the town has an air about it of being precisely as Jesus left it, and one finds himself saying, all the time, The boy Jesus has stood in this doorway, has played in that street, has touched these stones with his hands has rambled over these chalky hills. Whoever shall write the boyhood of Jesus ingeniously will make a book which will possess a vivid interest for young and old alike. I judge so from the greater interest we found in Nazareth than any of our speculations upon Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee gave rise to. It was not possible, standing by the Sea of Galilee, to frame more than a vague, far-away idea of the majestic personage who walked upon the crested waves, as if they had been solid earth, and who touched the dead, and they rose up and spoke. I read among my notes now, with a new interest, some sentences from an edition of 1621 of the apocryphal New Testament. Extract Christ, kissed by a bride, made dumb by sorcerers, cures her. A leprous girl, cured by the water in which the infant Christ was washed, and becomes the servant of Joseph and Mary. The leprous son of a prince cured in like manner. A young man, who had been bewitched and turned into a mule, miraculously cured by the infant Saviour being put on his back, and is married to the girl who had been cured of leprosy, whereupon the bystanders praise God. Chapter 16. Christ miraculously widens or contracts gates, milk-pails, sieves or boxes, not properly made by Joseph, he not being skillful at his carpenter's trade. The king of Jerusalem gives Joseph an order for a throne. Joseph works on it for two years, and makes it two spans too short. The king being angry with him, Jesus comforts him commands him to pull one side of the throne while he pulls the other, and brings it to its proper dimensions. Chapter 19. Jesus, charged with throwing a boy from the roof of a house, miraculously causes the dead boy to speak and acquit him, fetches water for his mother, breaks the pitcher, and miraculously gathers the water in his mantle and brings it home. Sent to a schoolmaster, refuses to tell his letters, and the schoolmaster going to whip him, his hand withers. Further on in this quaint volume of rejected Gospels is an epistle of St. Clement to the Corinthians, which was used in the churches and considered genuine fourteen or fifteen hundred years ago. In it this account of the fabled phoenix occurs. 1. 
Let us consider that wonderful type of the resurrection, which is seen in the eastern countries, that is to say, in Arabia. 2. There is a certain bird called a phoenix. Of this there is never but one at a time, and that lives five hundred years. And when the time of its dissolution draws near, that it must die, it makes itself a nest of frankincense and myrrh and other spices, into which, when its time is fulfilled, it enters and dies. 3. But its flesh, putrefying, breeds a certain worm, which, being nourished by the juice of the dead bird, brings forth feathers, and when it is grown to a perfect state, it takes up the nest in which the bones of its parent lie, and carries it from Arabia into Egypt, to a city called Heliopolis. 4 and flying in open day in the sight of all men, lays it upon the altar of the sun, and so returns from whence it came. 5. The priests then search into the records of the time, and find that it returned precisely at the end of five hundred years. Business is business, and there is nothing like punctuality, especially in a phoenix. The few chapters relating to the infancy of the Saviour contain many things which seem frivolous and not worth preserving. A large part of the remaining portions of the book read like good scripture, however. There is one verse that ought not to have been rejected, because it so evidently prophetically refers to the general run of Congresses of the United States. 199. They carry themselves high, and as prudent men, and though they are fools, yet would seem to be teachers. I have set these extracts down as I found them. Everywhere among the cathedrals of France and Italy one finds traditions of personages that do not figure in the Bible, and of miracles that are not mentioned in its pages. But they are all in this apocryphal New Testament, and though they have been ruled out of our modern Bible, it is claimed that they were accepted gospel twelve or fifteen centuries ago, and ranked as high in credit as any. One needs to read this book before he visits those venerable cathedrals, with their treasures of tabooed and forgotten tradition. They imposed another pirate upon us at Nazareth, another invincible Arab guard. We took our last look at the city, clinging like a whitewashed wasp's nest to the hillside, and at eight o'clock in the morning departed. We dismounted and drove the horses down a bridle-path, which I think was fully as crooked as a corkscrew, which I know to be as steep as the downward sweep of a rainbow and which I believe to be the worst piece of road in the geography, except one in the Sandwich Islands, which I remember painfully, and possibly one or two mountain trails in the Sierra Nevadas. Often in this narrow path the horse had to poise himself nicely on a rude stone step, and then drop his forefeet over the edge, and down something more than half his own height. This brought his nose near the ground, while his tail pointed up toward the sky somewhere, and gave him the appearance of preparing to stand on his head. A horse cannot look dignified in this position. We accomplished the long descent at last, and trotted across the great plain of Esdra-Elan. Some of us will be shot before we finish this pilgrimage. The pilgrims read nomadic life, and keep themselves in a constant state of quixotic heroism. They have their hands on their pistols all the time, and every now and then, when you least expect it, they snatch them out and take aim at Bedouins who are not visible, and draw their knives and make savage passes at other Bedouins who do not exist. I am in deadly peril always, for these spasms are sudden and irregular, and of course I cannot tell when to be getting out of the way. If I am accidentally murdered some time during one of these romantic frenzies of the pilgrims, Mr. Grimes must be rigidly held to answer as an accessory before the fact. 
If the pilgrims would take deliberate aim and shoot at a man, it would be all right and proper, because that man would not be in any danger. But these random assaults are what I object to. I do not wish to see any more places like Esdraelon, where the ground is level and people can gallop. It puts melodramatic nonsense into the pilgrims' heads, all at once when one is jogging along stupidly in the sun, and thinking about something ever so far away, here they come, at a stormy gallop, spurring and whooping at those ridgy old sore-backed plugs, till their heels fly higher than their heads, and as they whiz by, out comes a little potato-gun of a revolver, there is a startling little pop, and a small pellet goes singing through the air. Now that I have begun this pilgrimage, I intend to go through with it, though, sooth to say, nothing but the most desperate valour has kept me to my purpose up to the present time. I do not mind Bedouins. I am not afraid of them, because neither Bedouins nor ordinary Arabs have shown any disposition to harm us, but I do feel afraid of my own comrades. Arriving at the furthest verge of the plain, we rode a little way up a hill, and found ourselves at Endor, famous for its witch. Her descendants are there yet. They were the wildest horde of half-naked savages we have found thus far. They swarmed out of mud-beehives, out of hovels of the dry-goods box pattern, out of gaping caves under shelving rocks, out of crevices in the earth. In five minutes the dead solitude and silence of the place were no more, and a begging, screeching, shouting mob were struggling about the horses' feet and blocking the way. Bookshish! 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 Hawaji, Bookshish! It was Magdala over again, only here the glare of the infidel eyes was fierce and full of hate. The population numbers two hundred and fifty, and more than half the citizens live in caves in the rock. Dirt, degradation, and savagery are Endor's specialty. We say no more about Magdala and Duburia now. Endor heads the list. It is worse than any Indian Kampudi. The hill is barren, rocky, and forbidding. No sprig of grass is visible, and only one tree. This is a fig-tree, which maintains a precarious footing among the rocks, at the mouth of the dismal cavern once occupied by the veritable witch of Endor. In this cavern, tradition says, Saul, the king, sat at midnight, and stared and trembled, while the earth shook, the thunders crashed among the hills and out of the midst of fire and smoke the spirit of the dead prophet rose up and confronted him. Saul had crept to this place in the darkness while his army slept, to learn what fate awaited him in the morrow's battle. He went away a sad man, to meet disgrace and death. A spring trickles out of the rock in the gloomy recesses of the cavern, and we were thirsty. The citizens of Endor objected to our going in there. They do not mind dirt. They do not mind rags. They do not mind vermin. They do not mind barbarous ignorance and savagery. They do not mind a reasonable degree of starvation. But they do like to be pure and holy before their God, whoever he may be, and therefore they shudder and grow almost pale at the idea of Christian lips polluting a spring, whose waters must descend into their sanctified gullets. We had no wanton desire to wound even their feelings or trample upon their prejudices, but we were out of water thus early in the day, and were burning up with thirst. It was at this time, and under these circumstances, that I framed an aphorism which has already become celebrated. I said, Necessity knows no law. We went in and drank. We got away from the noisy wretches, finally, dropping them in squads and couples as we filed over the hills, the aged first, the infants next, the young girls further on, 
the strong men ran beside us a mile, and only left when they had secured the last possible piaster in the way of bakshish. In an hour we reached Nain, where Christ raised the widow's son to life. Nain is Magdala on a small scale. It has no population of any consequence. Within a hundred yards of it is the original graveyard, for aught I know. The tombstones lie flat on the ground, which is Jewish fashion in Syria. I believe the Muslims do not allow them to have upright tombstones. A Moslem grave is usually roughly plastered over and whitewashed, and has at one end an upright projection which is shaped into exceedingly rude attempts at ornamentation. In the cities there is often no appearance of a grave at all. A tall, slender marble tombstone, elaborately lettered, gilded, and painted, marks the burial place, and this is surmounted by a turban, so carved and shaped as to signify the dead man's rank in life. They showed a fragment of ancient wall which they said was one side of the gate out of which the widow's dead son was being brought so many centuries ago, when Jesus met the procession. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said, Weep not! And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise! And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. A little mosque stands upon the spot which tradition says was occupied by the widow's dwelling. Two or three aged Arabs sat about its door. We entered, and the pilgrims broke specimens from the foundation walls, though they had to touch and even step upon the praying carpets to do it. It was almost the same as breaking pieces from the hearts of those old Arabs. To step rudely about the sacred praying mats with booted feet, a thing not done by any Arab, was to inflict pain upon men who had not offended us in any way. Suppose a party of armed foreigners were to enter a village church in America and break ornaments from the altar railings for curiosities, and climb up and walk upon the Bible and the pulpit cushions. However, the cases are different. One is the profanation of a temple of our faith, the other only the profanation of a pagan one. We descended to the plain again, and halted a moment at a well, of Abraham's time, no doubt. It was in a desert place. It was walled three feet above ground with squared and heavy blocks of stone, after the manner of Bible pictures. Around it some camels stood, and others knelt. There was a group of sober little donkeys with naked dusky children clambering about them, or sitting astride their rumps, or pulling their tails. Tawny, black-eyed, barefooted maids, arrayed in rags and adorned with brazen armlets and pinchbeck earrings, were poised, water-jars upon their heads, or drawing water from the well. A flock of sheep stood by, waiting for the shepherds to fill the hollowed stones with water, so that they might drink, stones which, like those that wall the well, were worn smooth and deeply creased by the chafing chins of a hundred generations of thirsty animals. Picturesque Arabs sat upon the ground in groups, and solemnly smoked their long-stemmed chibouks. Other Arabs were filling black hogskins with water, skins which, well filled and distended with water, till the short legs projected painfully out of the proper line, 
looked like the corpses of hogs bloated by drowning. Here was a grand oriental picture which I had worshipped a thousand times in soft, rich steel engravings. But in the engraving there was no desolation, no dirt, no rags, no fleas, no ugly features, no sore eyes, no feasting flies, no besotted ignorance in the countenances, no raw places on the donkeys' backs, no disagreeable jabbering in unknown tongues, no stench of camels, no suggestion that a couple of tons of powder placed under the party and touched off would heighten the effect, and give to the scene a genuine interest and a charm which it would always be pleasant to recall, even though a man lived a thousand years. Oriental scenes look best in steel engravings. I cannot be imposed upon any more by that picture of the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon. I shall say to myself, you look fine, madam, but your feet are not clean, and you smell like a camel. Presently a wild Arab in charge of a camel train recognized an old friend in Ferguson, and they ran and fell upon each other's necks, and kissed each other's grimy bearded faces upon both cheeks. It explained instantly a something which had always seemed to me only a far-fetched oriental figure of speech. I refer to the circumstances of Christ's rebuking a Pharisee, or some such character, and reminding him that from him he had received no kiss of welcome. It did not seem reasonable to me that men should kiss each other, but I am aware now that they did. There was reason in it, too. The custom was natural and proper, because people must kiss, and a man would not be likely to kiss one of the women of this country of his own free will and accord. One must travel to learn. Every day now, old scriptural phrases that never possessed any significance for me before, take to themselves a meaning. We journeyed around the base of the mountain, Little Hermon, past the old crusader's castle of El Foule, and arrived at Shunem. This was another Magdala, to a fraction, frescoes and all. Here, tradition says, the prophet Samuel was born, and here the Shunemite woman built a little house upon the city wall for the accommodation of the prophet Elisha. Elisha asked her what she expected in return. It was a perfectly natural question, for these people are, and were, in the habit of proffering favors and services, and then expecting and begging for pay. Elisha knew them well. He could not comprehend that anybody should build for him that humble little chamber for the mere sake of old friendship, and with no selfish motive whatever. It used to seem a very impolite, not to say a rude, question for Elisha to ask the woman, but it does not seem so to me now. The woman said she expected nothing. Then, for her goodness and her unselfishness, he rejoiced her heart with the news that she should bear a son. It was a high reward, but she would not have thanked him for a daughter. Daughters have always been unpopular here. The son was born, grew, waxed strong, died. Elisha restored him to life in Shunem. We found here a grove of lemon-trees, cool, shady, hung with fruit. One is apt to overestimate beauty when it is rare, but to me this grove seemed very beautiful. It was beautiful. I do not overestimate it. I must always remember Shunem gratefully, as a place which gave to us this leafy shelter after our long hot ride. We lunched, rested, chatted, smoked our pipes an hour, and then mounted and moved on. 
As we trotted across the plain of Jezreel, we met half a dozen digger Indians, Bedouins, with very long spears in their hands, cavorting around on old crowbait horses, and spearing imaginary enemies, whooping and fluttering their rags in the wind, and carrying on in every respect like a pack of hopeless lunatics. At last, here were the wild free sons of the desert, speeding over the plain like the wind, on their beautiful Arabian mares we had read so much about and longed so much to see. Here were the picturesque costumes. This was the gallant spectacle, tatterdemalion vagrants, cheap braggadocio, Arabian mares, spined and necked like the ichthyosaurus in the museum, and humped and cornered like a dromedary. To glance at the genuine son of the desert is to take the romance out of him forever. To behold his steed is to long in charity to strip his harness off and let him fall to pieces. Presently we came to a ruinous old town on a hill, the same being the ancient Jezreel. Ahab, king of Samaria, this was a very vast kingdom for those days, and was very nearly half as large as Rhode Island, dwelt in the city of Jezreel, which was his capital. Near him lived a man by the name of Naboth, who had a vineyard. The king asked him for it, and when he would not give it, offered to buy it. But Naboth refused to sell it. In those days it was considered a sort of crime to part with one's inheritance at any price, and even if a man did part with it, it reverted to himself or his heirs again at the next jubilee year. So this spoiled child of a king went and lay down on the bed with his face to the wall and grieved sorely. The queen, a notorious character in those days, and whose name is a byword and a reproach even in these, came in and asked him wherefore he sorrowed, and he told her. Jezebel said she could secure the vineyard, and she went forth and forged letters to the nobles and wise men in the king's name, and ordered them to proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high before the people, and suborned two witnesses to swear that he had blasphemed. They did it, and the people stoned the accused by the city wall, and he died. Then Jezebel came and told the king, and said, Behold, Naboth is no more. Rise up and seize the vineyard. So Ahab seized the vineyard, and went into it to possess it. But the prophet Elijah came to him there, and read his fate to him, and the fate of Jezebel, and said that in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs should also lick his blood. And he said likewise, the dogs should eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. In the course of time the king was killed in battle, and when his chariot wheels were washed in the pool of Samaria, the dogs licked the blood. In after years, Jehu, who was king of Israel, marched down against Jezreel, by order of one of the prophets, and administered one of those convincing rebukes so common among the people of those days. He killed many kings and their subjects, and as he came along he saw Jezebel, painted and finely dressed, looking out of a window, and ordered that she be thrown down to him. A servant did it, and Jehu's horse trampled her underfoot. Then Jehu went in and sat down to dinner, and presently he said, Go and bury this cursed woman, for she is a king's daughter. The spirit of charity came upon him too late, however, for the prophecy had already been fulfilled. The dogs had eaten her, and they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Ahab, the late king, had left a helpless family behind him, and Jehu killed seventy of the orphan sons. 
Then he killed all the relatives, and teachers, and servants, and friends of the family, and rested from his labors, until he was come near to Samaria, where he met forty-two persons, and asked them who they were. They said they were brothers of the king of Judah. He killed them. When he got to Samaria, he said he would show his zeal for the Lord. So he gathered all the priests and people together that worshipped Baal, pretending that he was going to adopt that worship, and offer up a great sacrifice. And when they were all shut up where they could not defend themselves, he caused every person of them to be killed. Then Jehu, the good missionary, rested from his labors once more. We went back to the valley, and rode to the fountain of Ain Jalud. They call it the Fountain of Jezreel, usually. It is a pond about one hundred feet square and four feet deep, with a stream of water trickling into it from under an overhanging ledge of rocks. It is in the midst of a great solitude. Here Gideon pitched his camp in the old times. Behind Shumen lay the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of the east, who were as grasshoppers for multitude. Both they and their camels were without number, as the sand by the sea-side for multitude which means that there were one hundred and thirty-five thousand men, and that they had transportation service accordingly. Gideon, with only three hundred men, surprised them in the night, and stood by and looked on while they butchered each other until a hundred and twenty thousand lay dead on the field. We camped at Janine before night, and got up and started again at one o'clock in the morning. Somewhere toward daylight we passed the locality where the best authenticated tradition locates the pit into which Joseph's brethren threw him, and about noon, after passing over a succession of mountain-tops, clad with groves of fig and olive-trees, with the Mediterranean in sight some forty miles away, and going by many ancient biblical cities whose inhabitants glowered savagely upon our Christian procession, and were seemingly inclined to practice on it with stones, we came to the singularly terraced and unlovely hills that betrayed that we were out of Galilee and into Samaria at last. We climbed a high hill to visit the city of Samaria, where the woman may have hailed from who conversed with Christ at Jacob's well, and from whence, no doubt, came also the celebrated Good Samaritan. Herod the Great is said to have made a magnificent city of this place, and a great number of coarse limestone columns, twenty feet high and two feet through, that are almost guiltless of architectural grace of shape and ornament, are pointed out by many authors as evidence of the fact. They would not have been considered handsome in ancient Greece, however. The inhabitants of this camp are particularly vicious, and stoned two parties of our pilgrims a day or two ago, who brought about the difficulty by showing their revolvers when they did not intend to use them, a thing which is deemed bad judgment in the far west, and ought certainly to be considered anywhere. In the new territories, when a man puts his hand on a weapon, he knows that he must use it. He must use it instantly, or expect to be shot down where he stands. Those pilgrims had been reading Grimes. There was nothing for us to do in Samaria but buy handfuls of old Roman coins at a franc a dozen, and look at a dilapidated church of the Crusaders, and a vault in it which once contained the body of John the Baptist. This relic was long ago carried away to Genoa. Samaria stood a disastrous siege once, in the days of Elisha, at the hands of the king of Syria. Provisions reached such a figure that an ass-head was sold for eighty pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. 
an incident recorded of that heavy time will give one a very good idea of the distress that prevailed within these crumbling walls as the king was walking upon the battlements one day a woman cried out saying help my lord o king and the king said what aileth thee and she answered this woman said unto me give thy son that we may eat him to-day and we will eat my son to-morrow so we boiled my son and did eat him and i said unto her on the next day give thy son that we may eat him and she hath hid her son the prophet elisha declared that within four-and-twenty hours the prices of food should go down to nothing almost and it was so the syrian army broke camp and fled for some cause or other the famine was relieved from without and many a shoddy speculator in dove's dung and ass's meat was ruined we were glad to leave this hot and dusty old village and hurry on at two o'clock we stopped to lunch and rest at ancient shechem between the historic mounts of gerizim and ebal where in the old times the books of the law the curses and the blessings were read from the heights to the jewish multitudes below end of chapter fifty one this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Fifty Two, Curious Remnant of the Past, Sechem, the oldest first family on earth, the oldest manuscript extant, genuine tomb of Joseph, Jacob's Well, Shiloh, camping with the Arabs, Jacob's Ladder. More desolation, Rama, Beroth, the tomb of Samuel, the fountain of Beira, impatience, approaching Jerusalem, the holy city in sight, noting its prominent features, domiciled within the sacred walls. The narrow canon in which Nablus or Shechem is situated is under high cultivation, and the soil is exceedingly black and fertile. It is well watered and its affluent vegetation gains effect by contrast with the barren hills that tower on either side. One of these hills is the ancient Mount of Blessings, and the other the Mount of Curses, and wise men who seek for fulfillments of prophecy think they find here a wonder of this kind, to wit, that the Mount of Blessings is strangely fertile and its mate as strangely unproductive. We could not see that there was really much difference between them in this respect, however. Shechem is distinguished as one of the residences of the patriarch Jacob, and as the seat of those tribes that cut themselves loose from their brethren of Israel, and propagated doctrines not in conformity with those of the original Jewish creed. For thousands of years this clan have dwelt in Shechem under strict taboo, and having little commerce or fellowship with their fellow-men of any religion or nationality. For generations they have not numbered more than one or two hundred but they still adhere to their ancient faith and maintain their ancient rites and ceremonies. Talk of family and old descent. Princes and nobles pride themselves upon lineages they can trace back some hundreds of years. What is this trifle to this handful of old first families of Shechem, who can name their fathers straight back without a flaw for thousands? straight back to a period so remote that men reared in a country where the days of two hundred years ago are called ancient times grow dazed and bewildered when they try to comprehend it here is respectability for you here is family 
Here is high descent worth talking about. This sad, proud remnant of a once mighty community still hold themselves aloof from all the world. They still live as their fathers lived, labor as their fathers labored, think as they did, feel as they did, worship in the same place, in sight of the same landmarks, and in the same quaint, patriarchal way their ancestors did more than thirty centuries ago. I found myself gazing at any straggling scion of this strange race with a riveted fascination, just as one would stare at a living mastodon, or a megatherium, that had moved in the gray dawn of creation, and seen the wonders of that mysterious world that was before the flood. Carefully preserved among the sacred archives of this curious community is a MSS, copy of the ancient Jewish law, which is said to be the oldest document on earth. It is written on vellum, and is some four or five thousand years old. Nothing but bakshish can purchase a site. Its fame is somewhat dimmed in these latter days, because of the doubts so many authors of Palestine travels have felt themselves privileged to cast upon it. Speaking of this MSS, reminds me that I procured from the high priest of this ancient Samaritan community, at great expense, a secret document of still higher antiquity, and far more extraordinary interest, which I propose to publish as soon as I have finished translating it. Joshua gave his dying injunction to the children of Israel at Shechem, and buried a valuable treasure secretly under an oak-tree there about the same time. The superstitious Samaritans have always been afraid to hunt for it. They believe it is guarded by fierce spirits invisible to men. About a mile and a half from Shechem we halted at the base of Mount Ebal, before a little square area, enclosed by a high stone wall neatly whitewashed. Across one end of this enclosure is a tomb built after the manner of the Moslems. It is the tomb of Joseph. No truth is better authenticated than this. When Joseph was dying, he prophesied that exodus of the Israelites from Egypt which occurred four hundred years afterwards. At the same time he exacted of his people an oath, that when they journeyed to the land of Canaan, they would bear his bones with them and bury them in the ancient inheritance of his fathers. The oath was kept. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. Few tombs on earth command the veneration of so many races and men of diverse creeds as this of Joseph. Samaritan and Jew, Muslim and Christian alike, revere it, and honor it with their visits. The tomb of Joseph, the dutiful son, the affectionate forgiving brother, the virtuous man, the wise prince and ruler. Egypt felt his influence. The world knows his history. In this same parcel of ground, which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver, Jacob celebrated well. It is cut in the solid rock, and is nine feet square and ninety feet deep. The name of this unpretending hole in the ground, which one might pass by and take no notice of, is as familiar as household words to even the children and the peasants of many a far-off country. It is more famous than the Parthenon. It is older than the pyramids. It was by this well that Jesus sat and talked with a woman of that strange, antiquated Samaritan community I have been speaking of, 
and told her of the mysterious water of life. As descendants of old English nobles still cherish in the traditions of their houses how that this king or that king tarried a day with some favorite ancestor three hundred years ago, no doubt the descendants of the woman of Samaria, living there in Shechem, still refer with pardonable vanity to this conversation of their ancestor, held some little time gone by, with the Messiah of the Christians. It is not likely that they undervalue a distinction such as this. Samaritan nature is human nature, and human nature remembers contact with the illustrious, always. For an offence done to the family honour, the sons of Jacob exterminated all Shechem once. We left Jacob's well, and travelled till eight in the evening, but rather slowly, for we had been in the saddle nineteen hours, and the horses were cruelly tired. We got so far ahead of the tents that we had to camp in an Arab village and sleep on the ground. We could have slept in the largest of the houses, but there were some little drawbacks. It was populous with vermin, it had a dirt floor, it was in no respect cleanly, and there was a family of goats in the only bedroom, and two donkeys in the parlour. Outside there were no inconveniences except that the dusky, ragged, earnest-eyed villagers of both sexes and all ages grouped themselves on their haunches all around us, and discussed us, and criticized us with noisy tongues, till midnight. We did not mind the noise, being tired, but, doubtless, the reader is aware that it is almost an impossible thing to go to sleep, when you know that people are looking at you. We went to bed at ten, and got up again at two, and started once more. Thus are people persecuted by dragomen, whose sole ambition in life is to get ahead of each other. About daylight we passed Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant rested three hundred years, and at whose gates good old Eli fell down and brake his neck, when the messenger, riding hard from the battle, told him of the defeat of his people, the death of his sons, and, more than all, the capture of Israel's pride, her hope, her refuge, the ancient Ark her forefathers brought with them out of Egypt. It is little wonder that under circumstances like these he fell down and brake his neck. But Shiloh had no charms for us. We were so cold that there was no comfort but in motion, and so drowsy we could hardly sit upon the horses. After a while we came to a shapeless mass of ruins, which still bears the name of Bethel. It was here that Jacob lay down, and had that superb vision of angels flitting up and down a ladder that reached from the clouds to earth, and caught glimpses of their blessed home through the open gates of heaven. The pilgrims took what was left of the hallowed ruin, and we pressed on toward the goal of our crusade, renowned Jerusalem. The further we went, the hotter the sun got, and the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. There could not have been more fragments of stone strewn broadcast over this part of the world, if every ten square feet of the land had been occupied by a separate and distinct stone-cutter's establishment for an age. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere, even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. No landscape exists that is more tiresome to the eye than that which bounds the approaches to Jerusalem. The only difference between the roads and the surrounding country, perhaps, is that there are rather more rocks in the roads than in the surrounding country. We passed Ramah and Beroth, 
and on the right saw the tomb of the prophet Samuel, perched high upon a commanding eminence. Still no Jerusalem came in sight. We hurried on impatiently. We halted a moment at the ancient fountain of Baira, but its stones, worn deeply by the shins of thirsty animals that are dead and gone centuries ago, had no interest for us. We longed to see Jerusalem. We spurred up hill after hill, and usually began to stretch our necks minutes before we got to the top, but disappointment always followed. More stupid hills beyond, more unsightly landscape, no holy city. At last, away in the middle of the day, ancient bite of wall and crumbling arches began to line the way. We toiled up one more hill, and every pilgrim and every sinner swung his hat on high. Jerusalem! perched on its eternal hills, white and domed and solid, massed together and hooped with high gray walls, the venerable city gleamed in the sun. So small! Why, it was no larger than an American village of four thousand inhabitants, and no larger than an ordinary Syrian city of thirty thousand. Jerusalem numbers only fourteen thousand people. We dismounted and looked, without speaking a dozen sentences, across the wide intervening valley for an hour or more, and noted those prominent features of the city that pictures make familiar to all men from their school days till their death. We could recognize the Tower of Hippicus, the Mosque of Omar, the Damascus Gate, the Mount of Olives, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Tower of David, and the Garden of Gethsemane and dating from these landmarks could tell very nearly the localities of many others we were not able to distinguish. I record it here as a notable but not discreditable fact that not even our pilgrims wept. I think there was no individual in the party whose brain was not teeming with thoughts and images and memories invoked by the grand history of the venerable city that lay before us, but still among them all was no voice of them that wept. There was no call for tears. Tears would have been out of place. The thoughts Jerusalem suggests are full of poetry, sublimity, and more than all, dignity. Such thoughts do not find their appropriate expression in the emotions of the nursery. Just after noon we entered these narrow, crooked streets by the ancient and the famed Damascus Gate, and now, for several hours, I have been trying to comprehend that I am actually in the illustrious old city where Solomon dwelt, where Abraham held converse with the deity, and where walls still stand that witness the spectacle of the crucifixion. End of chapter 52 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 53 The Joy of the Whole Earth Description of Jerusalem Church of the Holy Sepulchre The Stone of Unction The Grave of Jesus Graves of Nicodemus and Joseph of Armatia Places of the Apparition the finding of the There crosses, the legend, monkish impostors, the pillar of flagellation, the place of a relic, Godfrey's sword, the bonds of Christ, the center of the earth, place whence the dust was taken of which Adam was made, grave of Adam, the martyred soldier, the copper plate that was on the cross, the good Saint Helena, 
place of the division of the garments, St. Demas the penitent thief, the late Emperor Maximilian's contribution, grotto wherein the crosses were found, and the nails, and the crown of thorns, chapel of the mocking, tomb of Melchizedek, graves of two renowned crusaders, the place of the crucifixion. A fast walker could go outside the walls of Jerusalem and walk entirely around the city in an hour. I do not know how else to make one understand how small it is. The appearance of the city is peculiar. It is as knobby with countless little domes as a prison door is with bolt-heads. Every house has from one to half a dozen of these white-plastered domes of stone, broad and low, sitting in the centre of, or in a cluster upon, the flat roof. Wherefore, when one looks down from an eminence, upon the compact mass of houses, so closely crowded together, in fact, that there is no appearance of streets at all, and so the city looks solid, he sees the knobbiest town in the world, except Constantinople. It looks as if it might be roofed, from centre to circumference, with inverted saucers. The monotony of the view is interrupted only by the great mosque of Omar, the tower of Hippicus, and one or two other buildings that rise into commanding prominence. The houses are generally two stories high, built strongly of masonry, whitewashed or plastered outside, and have a cage of wooden lattice-work projecting in front of every window. To reproduce a Jerusalem street, it would only be necessary to upend a chicken coop and hang it before each window in an alley of American houses. The streets are roughly and badly paved with stone, and are tolerably crooked, enough so to make each street appear to close together constantly and come to an end about a hundred yards ahead of a pilgrim, as long as he chooses to walk in it. Projecting from the top of the lower story of many of the houses is a very narrow porch-roof or shed, without supports from below and I have several times seen carts jump across the street from one shed to the other when they were out calling. The cats could have jumped double the distance without extraordinary exertion. I mention these things to give an idea of how narrow the streets are. Since a cat can jump across them without the least inconvenience, it is hardly necessary to state that such streets are too narrow for carriages. These vehicles cannot navigate the holy city. The population of Jerusalem is composed of Moslems, Jews, Greeks, Latins, Armenians, Syrians, Copts, Abyssinians, Greek Catholics, and a handful of Protestants. One hundred of the latter sect are all that dwell now in this birthplace of Christianity. The nice shades of nationality comprised in the above list, and the languages spoken by them, are altogether too numerous to mention. It seems to me that all the races and colors and tongues of the earth must be represented among the fourteen thousand souls that dwell in Jerusalem. Rags, wretchedness, poverty, and dirt, those signs and symbols that indicate the presence of Muslim rule more surely than the crescent flag itself, abound. Lepers, cripples, the blind, and the idiotic assail you on every hand, and they know but one word of but one language, apparently, the eternal bakshish. To see the numbers of maimed, malformed, and diseased humanity that throng the holy places, and obstruct the gates, one might suppose that the ancient days had come again, and that the angel of the Lord was expected to descend at any moment to stir the waters of Bethesda. Jerusalem is mournful, and dreary, and lifeless. I would not desire to live here. One naturally goes first to the holy sepulchre. 
It is right in the city, near the western gate. It and the place of the crucifixion, and in fact every other place intimately connected with that tremendous event, are ingeniously massed together and covered by one roof, the dome of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Entering the building, through the midst of the usual assemblage of beggars, one sees on his left a few Turkish guards, for Christians of different sects will not only quarrel but fight also in this sacred place, if allowed to do it. Before you is a marble slab which covers the stone of unction, whereon the Saviour's body was laid to prepare it for burial. It was found necessary to conceal the real stone in this way in order to save it from destruction. Pilgrims were too much given to chipping off pieces of it to carry home. Nearby is a circular railing which marks the spot where the Virgin stood when the Lord's body was anointed. Entering the great rotunda, we stand before the most sacred locality in Christendom, the grave of Jesus. It is in the center of the church, and immediately under the great dome. It is enclosed in a sort of little temple of yellow and white stone, of fanciful design. Within the little temple is a portion of the very stone which was rolled away from the door of the sepulchre, and on which the angel was sitting when Mary came thither at early dawn. Stooping low, we entered the vault, the sepulchre itself. It is only about six feet by seven, and the stone couch on which the dead Saviour lay extends from end to end of the apartment, and occupies half its width. It is covered with a marble slab which has been much worn by the lips of pilgrims. This slab serves as an altar now. Over it hang some fifty gold and silver lamps, which are kept always burning, and the place is otherwise scandalized by trumpery, gewgaws, and tawdry ornamentation. All sects of Christians, except Protestants, have chapels under the roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and each must keep to itself and not venture upon another's ground. It has been proven conclusively that they cannot worship together around the grave of the Saviour of the world in peace. The chapel of the Syrians is not handsome. That of the Copts is the humblest of them all. It is nothing but a dismal cavern, roughly hewn in the living rock of the hill of Calvary. In one side of it two ancient tombs are hewn, which are claimed to be those in which Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were buried. As we moved among the great piers and pillars of another part of the church, we came upon a party of black-robed, animal-looking Italian monks, with candles in their hands, who were chanting something in Latin, and going through some kind of religious performance around a disk of white marble let into the floor. It was there that the risen Saviour appeared to Mary Magdalene in the likeness of a gardener. Nearby was a similar stone shaped like a star. Here the Magdalene herself stood at the same time. Monks were performing in this place also. They perform everywhere, all over the vast building, and at all hours. Their candles are always flitting about in the gloom, and making the dim old church more dismal than there is any necessity that it should be, even though it is a tomb. We were shown the place where our Lord appeared to His mother after the resurrection. Here also a marble slab marks the place where St. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, found the crosses about three hundred years after the crucifixion. According to the legend, this great discovery elicited extravagant demonstrations of joy, but they were of short duration. The question intruded itself, which bore the blessed Saviour, and which the thieves? To be in doubt, in so mighty a matter as this, to be uncertain which one to adore, was a grievous misfortune. It turned the public joy to sorrow. But 
when lived there a holy priest who could not set so simple a trouble as this at rest? One of these soon hit upon a plan that would be a certain test. A noble lady lay very ill in Jerusalem. The wise priests ordered that the three crosses be taken to her bedside one at a time. It was done. When her eyes fell upon the first one, she uttered a scream that was heard beyond the Damascus gate, and even upon the Mount of Olives, it was said, and then fell back in a deadly swoon. They recovered her, and brought the second cross. Instantly she went into fearful convulsions, and it was with the greatest difficulty that six strong men could hold her. They were afraid, now, to bring in the third cross. They began to fear that possibility. They had fallen upon the wrong crosses, and that the true cross was not within this number at all. However, as the woman seemed likely to die with the convulsions that were tearing her, they concluded that the third could do no more than put her out of her misery with a happy dispatch. So they brought it, and behold, a miracle! The woman sprang from her bed, smiling and joyful, and perfectly restored to health. When we listen to evidence like this, we cannot but believe. We would be ashamed to doubt, and properly, too. Even the very part of Jerusalem where this all occurred is there yet, so there is really no room for doubt. The priests tried to show us, through a small screen, a fragment of the genuine pillar of flagellation to which Christ was bound when they scourged him, but we could not see it, because it was dark inside the screen. However, a baton is kept there, which the pilgrim thrusts through a hole in the screen, and then he no longer doubts that the true pillar of flagellation is in there. He cannot have any excuse to doubt it, for he can feel it with a stick. He can feel it as distinctly as he could feel anything. Not far from here was a niche where they used to preserve a piece of the true cross, but it is gone now. This piece of the cross was discovered in the sixteenth century. The Latin priests say it was stolen away, long ago, by priests of another sect. That seems like a hard statement to make, but we know very well that it was stolen because we have seen it ourselves in several of the cathedrals of Italy and France. But the relic that touched us most was the plain old sword of that stout crusader Godfrey of Bouillon, King Godfrey of Jerusalem. No blade in Christendom wields such enchantment as this. No blade of all that rust in the ancestral halls of Europe is able to invoke such visions of romance in the brain of him who looks upon it. None that can prate of such chivalric deeds or tell such brave tales of the warrior days of old. It stirs within a man every memory of the holy wars that has been sleeping in his brain for years, and peoples his thoughts with mail-clad images, with marching armies, with battles, and with sieges. It speaks to him of Baldwin and Tancred, the princely Saladin, the great Richard of the Lionheart. It was with just such blades as these that these splendid heroes of romance used to segregate a man, so to speak, and leave the half of him to fall one way and the other half the other. This very sword has cloven hundreds of Saracen knights from crown to chin in those old times when Godfrey wielded it. It was enchanted, then, by a genius that was under the command of King Solomon. When danger approached its master's tent, it always struck the shield and clanged out a fierce alarm upon the startled ear of night. In times of doubt, or in fog, or darkness, if it were drawn from its sheath, it would point instantly toward the foe, and thus reveal the way, and it would also attempt to start after them of its own accord. A Christian could not be so disguised that it would not know him and refuse to hurt him, 
nor a Muslim so disguised that it would not leap from its scabbard and take his life. These statements are all well authenticated in many legends that are among the most trustworthy legends the good old Catholic monks preserve. I can never forget old Godfrey's sword now. I tried it on a Muslim, and clove him in twain like a doughnut. The spirit of Grimes was upon me, and if I had had a graveyard I would have destroyed all the infidels in Jerusalem. I wiped the blood off the old sword and handed it back to the priest. I did not want the fresh gore to obliterate those sacred spots that crimsoned its brightness one day six hundred years ago, and thus gave Godfrey warning that before the sun went down his journey of life would end. Still moving through the gloom of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we came to a small chapel hewn out of the rock, a place which has been known as the Prison of Our Lord for many centuries. Tradition says that here the Saviour was confined just previously to the crucifixion. Under an altar by the door was a pair of stone stocks for human legs. These things are called the bonds of Christ, and the use they were once put to has given them the name they now bear. The Greek chapel is the most roomy, the richest and the showiest chapel in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Its altar, like that of all the Greek churches, is a lofty screen that extends clear across the chapel, and is gorgeous with gilding and pictures. The numerous lamps that hang before it are of gold and silver, and cost great sums. But the feature of the place is a short column that rises from the middle of the marble pavement of the chapel, and marks the exact center of the earth. The most reliable traditions tell us that this was known to be the earth's center ages ago, and that when Christ was upon earth he set all doubts upon the subject at rest forever by stating with his own lips that the tradition was correct. Remember, he said that that particular column stood upon the center of the world. If the center of the world changes, the column changes its position accordingly. This column has moved three different times of its own accord. This is because, in great convulsions of nature at three different times, masses of the earth, whole ranges of mountains probably, have flown off into space, thus lessening the diameter of the earth, and changing the exact locality of its center by a point or two. This is a very curious and interesting circumstance, and is a withering rebuke to those philosophers who would make us believe that it is not possible for any portion of the earth to fly off into space. To satisfy himself that this spot was really the center of the earth, a skeptic once paid well for the privilege of ascending to the dome of the church to see if the sun gave him a shadow at noon. He came down perfectly convinced. The day was very cloudy, and the sun threw no shadows at all. But the man was satisfied that if the sun had come out and made shadows, it could not have made any for him. Proofs like these are not to be set aside by the idle tongues of cavillers. To such as are not bigoted, and are willing to be convinced, they carry a conviction that nothing can ever shake. If even greater proofs than those I have mentioned are wanted, to satisfy the headstrong and the foolish that this is the genuine centre of the earth, they are here. The greatest of them lies in the fact that from under this very column was taken the dust from which Adam was made. This can surely be regarded in the light of a settler. It is not likely that the original first man would have been made from an inferior quality of earth, when it was entirely convenient to get first quality from the world's centre. This will strike any reflecting mind forcibly. 
that Adam was formed of dirt procured in this very spot is amply proven by the fact that in six thousand years no man has ever been able to prove that the dirt was not procured here whereof he was made. It is a singular circumstance that right under the roof of this same great church, and not far away from that illustrious column, Adam himself, the father of the human race, lies buried. There is no question that he is actually buried in the grave which is pointed out as his. There can be none, because it has never yet been proven that that grave is not the grave in which he is buried. The tomb of Adam! How touching it was, here in a land of strangers, far away from home and friends, and all who cared for me, thus to discover the grave of a blood relation. True, a distant one, but still a relation. The unerring instinct of nature thrilled its recognition. The fountain of my filial affection was stirred to its profoundest depths, and I gave way to tumultuous emotion. I leaned upon a pillar and burst into tears. I deem it no shame to have wept over the grave of my poor dead relative. Let him who would sneer at my emotion close this volume here, for he will find little to his taste in my journeyings through Holy Land. Noble old man, he did not live to see me, he did not live to see his child, and I, I, alas, I did not live to see him. Weighed down by sorrow and disappointment, he died before I was born, six thousand brief summers before I was born. But let us try to bear it with fortitude. Let us trust that he is better off where he is. Let us take comfort in the thought that his loss is our eternal gain. The next place the guide took us to in the Holy Church was an altar dedicated to the Roman soldier who was of the military guard that attended at the crucifixion to keep order, and who, when the veil of the temple was rent in the awful darkness that followed, when the rock of Golgotha was split asunder by an earthquake, when the artillery of heaven thundered, and in the baleful glare of the lightnings the shrouded dead flitted about the streets of Jerusalem, shook with fear, and said, Surely this was the Son of God. Where this altar stands now, that Roman soldier stood then, in full view of the crucified Saviour, in full sight and hearing of all the marvels that were transpiring far and wide about the circumference of the hill of Calvary. And in this self-same spot the priests of the temple beheaded him for those blasphemous words he had spoken. In this altar they used to keep one of the most curious relics that human eyes ever looked upon, a thing that had power to fascinate the beholder in some mysterious way, and keep him gazing for hours together. It was nothing less than the copper-plate pilot put upon the Saviour's cross, and upon which he wrote, This is the King of the Jews. I think St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, found this wonderful memento when she was here in the third century. She travelled all over Palestine, and was always fortunate. Whenever the good old enthusiast found a thing mentioned in her Bible, old or new, she would go and search for that thing, and never stop until she found it. If it was Adam, she would find Adam. If it was the Ark, she would find the Ark. If it was Goliath, or Joshua, she would find them. She found the inscription here that I was speaking of, I think. She found it in this very spot, close to where the martyred Roman soldier stood. That copper plate is in one of the churches in Rome now. Anyone can see it there. The inscription is very distinct. 
we passed along a few steps and saw the altar built over the very spot where the good Catholic priests say the soldiers divided the raiment of the Saviour. Then we went down into a cavern, which cavillers say was once a cistern. It is a chapel now, however, the chapel of St. Helena. It is fifty-one feet long by forty-three wide. In it is a marble chair which Helena used to sit in while she superintended her workmen when they were digging and delving for the true cross. In this place is an altar dedicated to St. Demas, the penitent thief. A new bronze statue is here, a statue of St. Helena. It reminded us of poor Maximilian so lately shot. He presented it to this chapel when he was about to leave for his throne in Mexico. From the cistern we descended twelve steps into a large roughly shaped grotto, carved wholly out of the living rock. Helena blasted it out when she was searching for the true cross. She had a laborious piece of work here, but it was richly rewarded. Out of this place she got the crown of thorns, the nails of the cross, the true cross itself, and the cross of the penitent thief. When she thought she had found everything, and was about to stop, she was told in a dream to continue a day longer. It was very fortunate. She did so, and found the cross of the other thief. The walls and roof of this grotto still weep bitter tears in memory of the event that transpired on Calvary, and devout pilgrims groan and sob when these sad tears fall upon them from the dripping rock. The monks call this apartment the Chapel of the Invention of the Cross, a name which is unfortunate, because it leads the ignorant to imagine that a tacit acknowledgment is thus made that the tradition that Helena found the true cross here is a fiction, an invention. It is a happiness to know, however, that intelligent people do not doubt the story in any of its particulars. Priests of any of the chapels and denominations in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre can visit this sacred grotto to weep and pray and worship the gentle Redeemer. Two different congregations are not allowed to enter at the same time, however, because they always fight. Still marching through the venerable church of the Holy Sepulchre, among chanting priests in coarse long robes and sandals, pilgrims of all colors and many nationalities, in all sorts of strange costumes, under dusky arches and by dingy piers and columns, through a sombre cathedral gloom freighted with smoke and incense, and faintly starred with scores of candles that appeared suddenly, and as suddenly disappeared, or drifted mysteriously hither and thither about the distant aisles like ghostly jack-o'-lanterns, we came at last to a small chapel which is called the Chapel of the Mocking. Under the altar was a fragment of a marble column. This was the seat Christ sat on when he was reviled, and mockingly made king crowned with a crown of thorns, and sceptred with a reed. It was here that they blindfolded him, and struck him, and said in derision, Prophecy who it is that smote thee. The tradition that this is the identical spot of the mocking is a very ancient one. The guide said that Seawolf was the first to mention it. I do not know Seawolf, but still I cannot well refuse to receive his evidence. None of us can. They showed us where the great Godfrey and his brother Baldwin, the first Christian kings of Jerusalem, once lay buried by that sacred sepulchre they had fought so long and so valiantly to wrest from the hands of the infidel. But the niches that had contained the ashes of these renowned crusaders were empty. Even the coverings of their tombs were gone, destroyed by devout members of the Greek church, because Godfrey and Baldwin were Latin princes 
and had been reared in a Christian faith whose creed differed in some unimportant respects from theirs. We passed on, and halted before the tomb of Melchizedek. You will remember Melchizedek, no doubt. He was the king who came out and levied a tribute on Abraham the time that he pursued Lot's captors to Dan, and took all their property from them. That was about four thousand years ago, and Melchizedek died shortly afterward. However, his tomb is in a good state of preservation. When one enters the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the sepulchre itself is the first thing he desires to see, and really is almost the first thing he does see. The next thing he has a strong yearning to see is the spot where the Saviour was crucified. But this they exhibit last. It is the crowning glory of the place. One is grave and thoughtful when he stands in the little tomb of the Saviour. He could not well be otherwise in such a place, but he has not the slightest possible belief that ever the Lord lay there, and so the interest he feels in the spot is very, very greatly marred by that reflection. He looks at the place where Mary stood, in another part of the church, and where John stood, and Mary Magdalene, where the mob derided the Lord, where the angel sat, where the crown of thorns was found, and the true cross, where the risen Saviour appeared. He looks at all these places with interest, but with the same conviction he felt in the case of the sepulchre, that there is nothing genuine about them, and that they are imaginary holy places created by the monks. But the place of the crucifixion affects him differently. He fully believes that he is looking upon the very spot where the Saviour gave up his life. He remembers that Christ was very celebrated long before he came to Jerusalem. He knows that his fame was so great that crowds followed him all the time. He is aware that his entry into the city produced a stirring sensation, and that his reception was a kind of ovation. He cannot overlook the fact that when he was crucified there were very many in Jerusalem who believed that he was the true Son of God. To publicly execute such a personage was sufficient in itself to make the locality of the execution a memorable place for ages. Added to this, the storm, the darkness, the earthquake, the rending of the veil of the temple, and the untimely waking of the dead, were events calculated to fix the execution and the scene of it in the memory of even the most thoughtless witness. Fathers would tell their sons about the strange affair, and point out the spot. The sons would transmit the story to their children, and thus a period of three hundred years would easily be spanned—the thought is Mr. Prime's, not mine, and is full of good sense. I borrowed it from his tent-life. M. T at which time Helena came and built a church upon Calvary to commemorate the death and burial of the Lord, and preserve the sacred place in the memories of men. Since that time there has always been a church there. It is not possible that there can be any mistake about the locality of the crucifixion. Not half a dozen persons knew where they buried the Saviour, perhaps, and a burial is not a startling event anyhow. Therefore we can be pardoned for unbelief in the sepulchre, but not in the place of the crucifixion. Five hundred years hence there will be no vestige of Bunker Hill Monument left, but America will still know where the battle was fought, and where Warren fell. The crucifixion of Christ was too notable an event in Jerusalem, and the hill of Calvary made too celebrated by it to be forgotten in the short space of three hundred years. I climbed the stairway in the church which brings one to the top of the small enclosed pinnacle of rock, and looked upon the place where the true cross once stood with a far more absorbing interest than I had ever felt in anything earthly before. I could not believe that the three holes in the top of the rock were the actual ones the crosses stood in. 
but I felt satisfied that those crosses had stood so near the place now occupied by them that the few feet of possible difference were a matter of no consequence. When one stands where the Saviour was crucified, he finds it all he can do to keep it strictly before his mind that Christ was not crucified in a Catholic Church. He must remind himself every now and then that the great event transpired in the open air, and not in a gloomy candle-lighted cell in a little corner of a vast church, upstairs, a small cell, all bejeweled and bespangled, with flashy ornamentation, in execrable taste. Under a marble altar, like a table, is a circular hole in the marble floor, corresponding with the one just under it in which the true cross stood. The first thing every one does is to kneel down and take a candle and examine this hole. He does this strange prospecting with an amount of gravity that can never be estimated or appreciated by a man who has not seen the operation. Then he holds his candle before a richly engraved picture of the Saviour, done on a messy slab of gold, and wonderfully rayed and starred with diamonds, which hangs above the hole within the altar, and his solemnity changes to lively admiration. He rises and faces the finely wrought figures of the Saviour and the malefactors, uplifted upon their crosses behind the altar, and bright with a metallic luster of many colors. He turns next to the figures close to them of the Virgin and Mary Magdalene, next to the rift in the living rock made by the earthquake at the time of the crucifixion, and an extension of which he had seen before in the wall of one of the grottoes below. He looks next at the showcase with a figure of the Virgin in it, and is amazed at the princely fortune in precious gems and jewelry that hangs so thickly about the form as to hide it like a garment almost. All about the apartment the gaudy trappings of the Greek church offend the eye and keep the mind on the rack, to remember that this is the place of the crucifixion, Golgotha, the Mount of Calvary. And the last thing he looks at is that which was also the first, the place where the true cross stood. That will chain him to the spot, and compel him to look once more, and once again, after he has satisfied all curiosity and lost all interest concerning the other matters pertaining to the locality. And so I close my chapter on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the most sacred locality on earth to millions and millions of men and women and children, the noble and the humble, bound and free. In its history from the first, and in its tremendous associations, it is the most illustrious edifice in Christendom. With all its claptrap side-shows and unseemly impostures of every kind, it is still grand, reverend, venerable. For a god died there. For fifteen hundred years its shrines have been wet with the tears of pilgrims from the earth's remotest confines. For more than two hundred, the most gallant knights that ever wielded sword wasted their lives away in a struggle to seize it and hold it sacred from infidel pollution. Even in our own day a war that cost millions of treasure and rivers of blood was fought because two rival nations claimed the sole right to put a new dome upon it. History is full of this old church of the Holy Sepulchre, full of blood that was shed because of the respect and the veneration in which men held the last resting-place of the meek and lowly, the mild and gentle, Prince of Peace. End of chapter 51 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 54. 
the sorrowful way the legend of st veronica's handkerchief an illustrious stone house of the wandering jew the tradition of the wanderer solomon's temple mosque of omar moslem traditions women not admitted the fate of a gossip turkish sacred relics judgment seat of david and saul genuine precious remains of solomon's temple surfeited with sights the pool of siloam the garden of gethsemane and other sacred localities we were standing in a narrow street by the tower of antonio on these stones that are crumbling away the guide said the saviour sat and rested before taking up the cross this is the beginning of the sorrowful way or the way of grief the party took note of the sacred spot and moved on we passed under the eke homo arch and saw the very window from which pilate's wife warned her husband to have nothing to do with the persecution of the just man this window is in an excellent state of preservation considering its great age they showed us where jesus rested the second time and where the mob refused to give him up and said let his blood be upon our heads and upon our children's children forever the french catholics are building a church on this spot and with their usual veneration of historical relics are incorporating into the new such scraps of ancient walls as they have found there further on we saw the spot where the fainting saviour fell under the weight of his cross a great granite column of some ancient temple lay there at the time and the heavy cross struck it such a blow that it broke in two in the middle such was the guide's story when he halted us before the broken column we crossed a street and came presently to the former residence of st veronica when the saviour passed there she came out full of womanly compassion and spoke pitying words to him undaunted by the hootings and the threatenings of the mob and wiped the perspiration from his face with her handkerchief we had heard so much of st veronica and seen her picture by so many masters that it was like meeting an old friend unexpectedly to come upon her ancient home in jerusalem the strangest thing about the incident that has made her name so famous is that when she wiped the perspiration away the print of the saviour's face remained upon the handkerchief a perfect portrait and so remains unto this day we knew this because we saw this handkerchief in a cathedral in paris in another in spain and in two others in italy in the milan cathedral it cost five francs to see it and at st peter's at rome it is almost impossible to see it at any price no tradition is so amply verified as this of st veronica and her handkerchief at the next corner we saw a deep indention in the hard stone masonry of the corner of a house but might have gone heedlessly by it but that the guide said it was made by the elbow of the saviour who stumbled here and fell presently we came to just such another indention in a stone wall the guide said that the saviour fell here also and made this depression with his elbow there were other places where the lord fell and others where he rested but one of the most serious landmarks of ancient history we found on this morning walk through the crooked lanes that lead toward calvary was a certain stone built into a house a stone that was so seamed and scarred that it bore a sort of grotesque resemblance to the human face the projections that answered for cheeks were worn smooth by the passionate kisses of generations of pilgrims from distant lands we asked why 
The guide said it was because this was one of the very stones of Jerusalem that Christ mentioned when he was reproved for permitting the people to cry Hosanna when he made his memorable entry into the city upon an ass. One of the pilgrims said, But there is no evidence that the stones did cry out. Christ said that if the people stopped from shouting Hosanna, the very stones would do it. The guide was perfectly serene. He said calmly, This is one of the stones that would have cried out. It was of little use to try to shake this fellow's simple faith. It was easy to see that. And so we came at last to another wonder, of deep and abiding interest. The veritable house where the unhappy wretch once lived, who has been celebrated in song and story for more than eighteen hundred years, as the wandering Jew. On the memorable day of the crucifixion he stood in this old doorway with his arms akimbo, looking out upon the struggling mob that was approaching, and when the weary Saviour would have sat down and rested him a moment, pushed him rudely away, and said, Move on. The Lord said, Move on, thou likewise, and the command has never been revoked from that day to this. All men know how that the miscreant upon whose head that just curse fell has roamed up and down the wide world for ages and ages, seeking rest and never finding it, courting death but always in vain, longing to stop in city, in wilderness, in desert solitudes, yet hearing always that relentless warning to march, march on. They say, do these hoary traditions, that when Titus sacked Jerusalem and slaughtered eleven hundred thousand Jews in her streets and byways, the wandering Jew was seen always in the thickest of the fight, and that when battle-axes gleamed in the air, he bowed his head beneath them. When swords flashed their deadly lightnings, he sprang in their way. He bared his breast to whizzing javelins, to hissing arrows, to any and to every weapon that promised death and forgetfulness and rest but it was useless. He walked forth out of the carnage without a wound, and it is said that five hundred years afterward he followed Mahomet when he carried destruction to the cities of Arabia, and then turned against him, hoping in this way to win the death of a traitor. His calculations were wrong again. No quarter was given to any living creature but one, and that was the only one of all the host that did not want it. He sought death five hundred years later in the wars of the Crusades, and offered himself to famine and pestilence at Escalon. He escaped again. He could not die. These repeated annoyances could have at last but one effect. They shook his confidence. Since then the wandering Jew has carried on a kind of desultory toying with the most promising of the aids and implements of destruction, but with small hope as a general thing. He has speculated some in cholera and railroads, and has taken almost a lively interest in infernal machines and patent medicines. He is old now, and grave, as becomes an age like his. He indulges in no light amusements, save that he goes sometimes to executions, and is fond of funerals. There is one thing he cannot avoid. Go where he will about the world, he must never fail to report in Jerusalem every fiftieth year. Only a year or two ago he was here for the thirty-seventh time since Jesus was crucified on Calvary. They say that many old people who are here now saw him then, and had seen him before. He looks always the same, old and withered and hollow-eyed and listless, save that there is about him something which seems to suggest that he is looking for someone, expecting someone, the friends of his youth, perhaps. But the most of them are dead now. 
He always pokes about the old streets looking lonesome, making his mark on a wall here and there, and eyeing the oldest buildings with a sort of friendly half-interest, and he sheds a few tears at the threshold of his ancient dwelling, and bitter, bitter tears they are. Then he collects his rent and leaves again. He has been seen standing near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on many a starlight night, for he has cherished an idea for many centuries that if he could only enter there he could rest. But when he approaches, the doors slam to with a crash, the earth trembles, and all the lights in Jerusalem burn a ghastly blue. He does this every fifty years, just the same. It is hopeless. But then it is hard to break habits one has been eighteen hundred years accustomed to. The old tourist is far away on his wanderings now. How he must smile to see a pack of blockheads like us galloping about the world, and looking wise, and imagining we are finding out a good deal about it. He must have a consuming contempt for the ignorant, complacent asses that go scurrying about the world in these railroading days, and call it travelling. When the guide pointed out where the wandering Jew had left his familiar mark upon a wall, I was filled with astonishment. It read, S. T. 1860. X. All I have revealed about the wandering Jew can be amply proven by reference to our guide. The mighty mosque of Omar, and the paved court around it, occupy a fourth part of Jerusalem. They are upon Mount Moriah, where King Solomon's temple stood. This mosque is the holiest place the Mohammedan knows outside of Mecca. Up to within a year or two past no Christian could gain admission to it, or its court, for love or money. But the prohibition has been removed, and we entered freely for Bakshish. I need not speak of the wonderful beauty and the exquisite grace and symmetry that have made this mosque so celebrated, because I do not see them. One cannot see such things at an instant glance. One frequently only finds out how really beautiful a really beautiful woman is, after considerable acquaintance with her. And the rule applies to Niagara Falls, to majestic mountains, and to mosques, especially to mosques. The great feature of the Mosque of Omar is the prodigious rock in the center of its rotunda. It was upon this rock that Abraham came so near offering up his son Isaac. This at least is authentic. It is very much more to be relied on than most of the traditions, at any rate. On this rock also the angel stood and threatened Jerusalem, and David persuaded him to spare the city. Mahomet was well acquainted with this stone. From it he ascended to heaven. The stone tried to follow him, and if the angel Gabriel had not happened by the merest good luck to be there to seize it, it would have done it. Very few people have a grip like Gabriel. The prints of his monstrous fingers, two inches deep, are to be seen in that rock to-day. This rock, large as it is, is suspended in the air. It does not touch anything at all. The guide said so. This is very wonderful. In the place on it where Mahomet stood, he left his footprints in the solid stone. I should judge that he wore about eighteens. But what I was going to say, when I spoke of the rock being suspended, was that in the floor of the cavern, under it, they showed us a slab which they said covered a hole, which was a thing of extraordinary interest to all Mohammedans, because that hole leads down to perdition, and every soul that is transferred from thence to heaven must pass up through this orifice. Mahomet stands there and lifts them out by the hair. All Mohammedans shave their heads, but they are careful to leave a lock of hair for the Prophet to take hold of. 
Our guide observed that a good Mohammedan would consider himself doomed to stay with the damned forever if he were to lose his scalp-lock and die before it grew again. The most of them that I have seen ought to stay with the damned, anyhow, without reference to how they were barbered. For several ages no woman has been allowed to enter the cavern where that important hole is. The reason is that one of the sex was once caught there blabbing everything she knew about what was going on above ground to the rapscallions in the infernal regions down below. She carried her gossiping to such an extreme that nothing could be kept private, nothing could be done or said on earth, but everybody in perdition knew all about it before the sun went down. It was about time to suppress this woman's telegraph, and it was promptly done. Her breath subsided about the same time. The inside of the great mosque is very showy, with variegated marble walls, and with windows and inscriptions of elaborate mosaic. The Turks have their sacred relics, like the Catholics. The guide showed us the veritable armor worn by the great son-in-law and successor of Mahomet, and also the buckler of Mohammed's uncle. The great iron railing which surrounds the rock was ornamented in one place with a thousand rags tied to its open work. These are to remind Mahomet not to forget the worshippers who placed them there. It is considered the next best thing to tying threads around his finger by way of reminders. Just outside the mosque is a miniature temple, which marks the spot where David and Goliath used to sit and judge the people. A pilgrim informs me that it was not David and Goliath, but David and Saul. I stick to my own statement. The guide told me, and he ought to know. Everywhere about the mosque of Omar are portions of pillars, curiously wrought altars, and fragments of elegantly carved marble, precious remains of Solomon's temple. These have been dug from all depths in the soil and rubbish of Mount Moriah, and the Moslems have always shown a disposition to preserve them with the utmost care. At that portion of the ancient wall of Solomon's temple, which is called the Jews' Place of Wailing, and where the Hebrews assemble every Friday to kiss the venerated stones, and weep over the fallen greatness of Zion, any one can see a part of the unquestioned and undisputed temple of Solomon, the same consisting of three or four stones lying one upon the other, each of which is about twice as long as a seven-octave piano, and about as thick as such a piano is high. But as I have remarked before, it is only a year or two ago that the ancient edict prohibiting Christian rubbish like ourselves to enter the mosque of Omar and see the costly marbles that once adorned the inner temple was annulled. The designs wrought upon these fragments are all quaint and peculiar, and so the charm of novelty is added to the deep interest they naturally inspire. One meets with these venerable scraps at every turn, especially in the neighboring Mosque el-Aqsa, into whose inner walls a very large number of them are carefully built for preservation. These pieces of stone, stained and dusty with age, dimly hint at a grandeur we have all been taught to regard as the princeliest ever seen on earth, and they call up pictures of a pageant that is familiar to all imaginations—camels laden with spices and treasure beautiful slaves, presents for Solomon's harems, a long cavalcade of richly caparisoned beasts and warriors, and Sheba's queen in the van of this vision of oriental magnificence. These elegant fragments bear a richer interest than the solemn vastness of the stones the Jews kiss in the place of wailing can ever have for the heedless sinner. 
down in the hollow ground, underneath the olives and the orange trees that flourish in the court of the great mosque, is a wilderness of pillars, remains of the ancient temple. They supported it. There are ponderous archways down there also, over which the destroying plough of prophecy passed harmless. It is pleasant to know we are disappointed, in that we never dreamed we might see portions of the actual temple of Solomon, and yet experience no shadow of suspicion that they were a monkish humbug and a fraud. We are surfeited with sights. Nothing has any fascination for us now but the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We have been there every day, and have not grown tired of it, but we are weary of everything else. The sights are too many. They swarm about you at every step. No single foot of ground in all Jerusalem or within its neighborhood seems to be without a stirring and important history of its own. It is a very relief to steal a walk of a hundred yards without a guide along to talk unceasingly about every stone you step upon, and drag you back ages and ages to the day when it achieved celebrity. It seems hardly real when I find myself leaning for a moment on a ruined wall and looking listlessly down into the historic pool of Bethesda. I did not think such things could be so crowded together as to diminish their interest. But, in serious truth, we have been drifting about for several days, using our eyes and our ears more from a sense of duty than any higher and worthier reason, and too often we have been glad when it was time to go home and be distressed no more about illustrious localities. Our pilgrims compress too much into one day. One can gorge sights to repletion as well as sweetmeats. Since we breakfast this morning, we have seen enough to have furnished us food for a year's reflection if we could have seen the various objects in comfort and looked upon them deliberately. We visited the pool of Hezekiah, where David saw Uriah's wife coming from the bath and fell in love with her. We went out of the city by the Jaffa Gate, and, of course, were told many things about its Tower of Hippicus. We rode across the valley of Hinnom, between two of the pools of Gihon, and by an aqueduct built by Solomon, which still conveys water to the city. We ascended the hill of Evil Council, where Judas received his thirty pieces of silver, and we also lingered a moment under the tree a venerable tradition says he hanged himself on. We descended to the cannon again, and then the guide began to give name and history to every bank and boulder we came to. This was the field of blood. These cuttings in the rocks were shrines and temples of Moloch. Here they sacrificed children. Yonder is the Zion Gate, the Teropian Valley, the Hill of Ophel. Here is the junction of the Valley of Jehoshaphat. On your right is the Well of Job. We turned up Jehoshaphat. The recital went on. This is the Mount of Olives. This is the Hill of Offense. The Nest of Huts is the village of Siloam. Here, yonder, everywhere, is the king's garden. Under this great tree, Zacharias, the high priest, was murdered. Yonder is Mount Moriah and the temple wall, the tomb of Absalom, the tomb of St. James, the tomb of Zacharias. Beyond are the garden of Gethsemane and the tomb of the Virgin Mary. Here is the pool of Salome, and— we said we would dismount and quench our thirst and rest. We were burning up with the heat. We were failing under the accumulated fatigue of days and days of ceaseless marching. All were willing. The pool is a deep-walled ditch through which a clear stream of water runs that comes from under Jerusalem somewhere. 
and, passing through the Fountain of the Virgin, or being supplied from it, reaches this place by way of a tunnel of heavy masonry. The famous pool looked exactly as it looked in Solomon's time, no doubt, and the same dusky Oriental women came down in their old Oriental way, and carried off jars of the water on their heads, just as they did three thousand years ago, and just as they will do fifty thousand years hence, if any of them are still left on earth. We went away from there, and stopped at the Fountain of the Virgin. But the water was not good, and there was no comfort or peace anywhere, on account of the regiment of boys and girls and beggars that persecuted us all the time for bakshish. The guide wanted us to give them some money, and we did it. But when he went on to say that they were starving to death, we could not but feel that we had done a great sin in throwing obstacles in the way of such a desirable consummation, and so we tried to collect it back, but it could not be done. We entered the Garden of Gethsemane, and we visited the tomb of the Virgin, both of which we had seen before. It is not meet that I should speak of them now. A more fitting time will come. I cannot speak now of the Mount of Olives, or its view of Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, and the mountains of Moab, nor of the Damascus Gate, or the tree that was planted by King Godfrey of Jerusalem. One ought to feel pleasantly when he talks of these things. I cannot say anything about the stone column that projects over Jehoshaphat from the temple wall like a cannon, except that the Moslems believe Mahomet will sit astride of it when he comes to judge the world. It is a pity he could not judge it from some roost of his own in Mecca, without trespassing on our holy ground. Close by is the golden gate in the temple wall, a gate that was an elegant piece of sculpture in the time of the temple, and is even so yet. From it, in ancient times, the Jewish high priest turned loose their scapegoat, and let him flee to the wilderness, and bear away his twelve-month load of the sins of the people. If they were to turn one loose now, he would not get as far as the Garden of Gethsemane, till these miserable vagabonds here would gobble him up, favorite pilgrim expression, sins and all. They wouldn't care. Mutton chops and sin is good enough living for them. The Moslems watch the Golden Gate with a jealous eye, and an anxious one, for they have an honored tradition that when it falls, Islamism will fall, and with it the Ottoman Empire. It did not grieve me any to notice that the old gate was getting a little shaky. We are at home again. We are exhausted. The sun has roasted us almost. We have full comfort in one reflection, however. Our experiences in Europe have taught us that in time this fatigue will be forgotten. The heat will be forgotten, the thirst, the tiresome volubility of the guide, the persecutions of the beggars, and then all that will be left will be pleasant memories of Jerusalem, memories we shall call up with always increasing interest as the years go by, memories which some day will become all beautiful when the last annoyance that encumbers them shall have faded out of our minds, never again to return. Schoolboy days are no happier than the days of after-life but we look back upon them regretfully because we have forgotten our punishments at school, and how we grieved when our marbles were lost and our kites destroyed, because we have forgotten all the sorrows and privations of that canonized epoch, and remember only its orchard robberies, its wooden sword pageants, and its fishing holidays. We are satisfied. We can wait. Our reward will come. To us, Jerusalem and today's experiences will be an enchanted memory a year hence, memory which money could not buy from us. End of chapter 54